You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. All right, welcome back to Under the Shield. Got it. Presents Fight in Progress. <laughs> you do. You you nailed it this yeah, time. Yeah, I really did. I, a lot of times I screw that up. <laughs> we have to do take two and take three and whatever else. But uh, anyway, um, yep, TomTheBomb.com is back again. I am. He hasn't been paramotoring again yet. I'm not well, sure. Well, it's only been two days, so. <laughs> yeah, don't say anything. Be quiet. Don't give them our trade secrets here on how we do things. Uh, this is Susan Simmons. Um, I don't even know what to call myself um, anymore. Except old. Well, getting yeah, older about well, a minute. Well, let's wait till March. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I know what that's going to look like. Jay, I'm probably going to take a leave of absence in March. Uh, anyway, uh, we're excited to have another one of our new stress coaches who came all the way from Massachusetts again to a really nice place. I can I have to say our weather has been wonderful for you. Yes, it has. And now you're going to have to go back, I assume, to cold temperatures. Cold temperatures, ice and snow on the ground. Yay. What, yeah. What's the temperature been like since you've been out here? Back home while yeah, here. Back, back home. home. Uh, Mid-20s average, <laughs> but it will drop down to the single digits at night. Right. And uh, Snow and ice while you've been gone? The first tell you, I was here in uh, Arizona it was 30 inches of snow oh, in one day. Wow. <laughs> so I was happy to miss that. Yeah. I bet your wife is thinking she she's earned a vacation in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think you should do that for her. <laughs> I'll send you the bill. <laughs> yeah. Dang it, me and my big mouth. <laughs> anyway, it really is an honor to have you come all the way out. You and I met, what's it been now, a year and a few months ago? And um, so the fact that you messaged me and said, I'm ready to do it, I thought, wow, this is going to be awesome. So we are really honored uh, to have you come all that way and want to be a part of the family, and you are. So welcome to the Under the Shield family. Thank you. And I'm sure we've got listeners that are may want to talk to you, and we will certainly have ways of making that happen. So tell us a little bit about your background, your story. This is your story to tell. You tell whatever you want the audience to know. All right. I grew up in a family of nine boys, which had a lot of uh, positive parts because I didn't have to deal with any females. <laughs> uh, oh, you don't really even know just how positive that was. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I, remembering back to my childhood and all um, I always had a uneasiness about things, and I always wanted to be alone. Okay, were you? Where were you in the pecking order? I was number five. Okay, and um, as often as heard, there's, I was in a very religious Catholic family upbringing. But even as a child, I I didn't that didn't fit either. <laughs> and I brought that uneasiness into my teen years, where uh, the first introduction of any kind of substance was alcohol when I was 13 years old. 
Um, and back then, things were a lot looser right. than they are now as far as checking IDs. I was drinking in a Chinese restaurant regularly because all they cared about was money. At 13? Yeah, 13 and 14. And the alcohol brought me confidence, brought me comfort, uh, courage to do some things that I, in a sober mind, would was terrified to do at times or uncomfortable to do. What, what was your drink of choice at 13, yeah. 14? What were you drinking? Uh, I liked, I always liked beer. It oh, was okay. always beer. And like we used to go out for lunch and we'd get these frosted mugs of 24 <laughs> ounces and try to do two, if not three, and then go back to work. And, um, you know, it, it was, it just wasn't a thing that I thought was any harm to anybody. Mm -hmm. Were most uh, of your brothers drinkers, do you know? And at young ages? A, a couple of them were, but um, I was so young that I don't think I, I recognized what it was they were doing, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, but as life went on and my in my teen years would go, it was like, uh, I, I could recognize a few of them were, I don't know if they were as uh, bad as I, or as, if they partook like I did, but I, I tried to find every opportunity to get alone and to drink. Hmm. Interesting. And um, as my life went on into the later teens, um, I went to college for one year, and uh, sadly, the, the best thing I got out of that year was that I was a better drinker at the end of it than I was at the beginning. That needs to be my story, because that's definitely who I was. <laughs> no question. I, you know, my dad used to laugh because we had a bar in, where, where I went to school at the University of South Carolina called the Library Club. And... Literally, my parents would call and go, what are you doing nice? I'm going to the library. And I, I really wasn't trying. I thought they knew. <laughs> and about uh, probably my junior year, I, we took my parents after a football game to the library. And, and literally, we walk in. My dad was in education for 30 years. And we literally walk in, and they're, they're, it's in the basement of another bar. Touch what a fine, upstanding place it was. And there were books on the shelves with spider webs all over them. And we walk in, and literally, my father stops. And it was like this light bulb moment. He goes, Susan. This isn't the library. Oh, yeah. You thought I was at McKissick? Because I've been bragging to all my friends about you spending so much time at the library. Oh, no, no. I, I No, this is the education I came for. Yeah. I know that story. Yeah, for sure, huh? So anyway, after that year in college, I, I um, quit that, and I went into the uh, work field, um, and I... I had several different jobs, and I ended up uh, marrying uh, a woman or a girl that was, uh, I my families knew each other, so I, you know, I had known her for several years, and we got married young, and um, we ended up having, she got, we got pregnant, and, and she, we had our first baby, a boy, and it was a weekday, and I couldn't find anyone to drink with to celebrate. <laughs> and I now know I just sort of stay with my wife and the baby and just enjoyed that 
new experience. Sure. But I didn't. I left and I went out and I rode around for hours just drinking by myself, celebrating, if you would. Um, and Did the, she know that's what you were doing? She knew that I, she was upset that I left. Uh -huh. I don't know if she knew I was riding around alone. I never told her. Uh -huh. uh, but it, the progression in my drinking was is what I'm trying to get at. And it did still pro progress. Um, we kept ha having children um, when I was 29, and we had five children, and my wife was pregnant with our sixth. I went into the police academy uh, in, at, in Massachusetts. And um, during that time, I kind of squared things away with my, you know, with the discipline I was getting from the, the academy. Mm -hmm. um, and it just filled, I didn't have free time. I was either <laughs> you know, a little busy going fixing the uniforms, and, writing yeah. reports, doing all kinds of things. So that, that worked out pretty well. And I, when I graduated uh, from the academy, I think I was probably up until that point, finally the person I wanted to be. Because the alcohol was gone, and it was a level of confidence that I, I got through that whole experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, ended up finishing all the training, going on the road. Uh, and after work, you know, as, as time went by, we'd, we'd go out after a shift and, and, and drink in a park or something like that, just to, uh, you know, a kind of bonding, bonding time. And there was this one night where we were drinking and two guys in a two-man car that had just gone on shift came driving over to where we were at and uh, get out of the cruiser. They both um, opened up a cooler, grabbed a beer, and started drinking. And I'm like, I was like aghast. I was like shocked. I said, <laughs> how can they do that? Yeah. And I, and I swore. I said, I'll never, ever do that on duty, never. And, and I meant it, you know. Um, but the hectic pace of being not only new, you know, a newly branded cop, I was also working a lot of extra work, which we call details. And there's also overtime because I had a family to support. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that as time went on, uh, uh you know, I guess I started feeling, I was owed something because I'm always <laughs> I'm always tied up and always providing and this and that and the other thing you know, and uh, as time went by, um, I wasn't on the road too long. I, was, I went into a unit with a year and a half on, and I that made the temptations a lot stronger. Huh. Um, now, what do you mean by you went into a unit? I went into an auto theft unit, okay. and I was playing clothes, uh -huh. and we had um, unmarked cruises that were actually rental cars, so everything mm -hmm. was different. And I had weekends off, nights off, um, but I I got the ability to tell my wife I'm working later, whether it was going out drinking or actually on detail right. or overtime. and. It, you know, she had no way of knowing better. Sure. You know, and I'm figuring by the time I get home, she's asleep. I'm not hurting anybody. Sure. And uh, more often than not, we were in places where we didn't have to pay for anything. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, there you go. I'm not wasting family money. Mm -hmm. 
and I really developed this uh, this mantra that I, I'm not hurting anybody. Sure. I am not hurting anybody. And uh, but the drinking increased more and more that I then broke the promise I had made to myself and I started drinking during work. Um, was that a pretty common thing? Do you think, you know, this was a, this was how many years ago now? This was 30 years ago. Okay. And do you feel like, actually, excuse me, it's like 34 years now. I've been retired, retired after 32, but yeah, yeah, that was a few years ago. But was that kind of an acceptable thing? Because I, I know in certain parts of the country that really right. wasn't necessarily that unusual. I'm not saying right, but I, I cannot tell you. Well, I when I was in the uh, the auto theft unit, this is the first time that I saw anybody else drink on the job. Okay. Other than that first time with the two people that got out of the cruiser, right? Correct. Yep. And and. Then that became commonplace because now I had a, a comrade. Sure. You know, and we would find ways to, to, uh, you know, find opportunities to drink, even on surveillances and so forth. Um, and I mean, would be after somebody in a pursuit or whatever, and I, I would, I'd be hammered. I went off the road. I flipped the cruiser. Wow. Um, but you're able to cover it all up walk away and uh that became very empowering mm -hmm. you know and and for, in my head i was like still not hurting anybody you know um and it was you know if i wish there was somebody there that knew that could say uh what i later found you know, to be the case which was I was deteriorating from the person I wanted to be and could be, and I was t turning into uh, an, an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And um, so it carried on a few more years, and uh, there was some public display of my uh, drinking that I was getting to the point where it didn't matter if I was in uniform I was on a mounting unit. We used to do the Patriots games, uh, and they they still do. But uh, I would be shattered on on horseback, going around the parking lots and stuff, and and barely able to stay on the horse. And it's like it was that part of my life was getting worse and worse. I was able and willing to justify doing more and more and more. Um, and it wasn't necessarily that it was a conscious thought process. It just kind of morphed into that mm -hmm. and um now the the effects of what i was doing was in fact coming home i didn't know that um uh, my wife was much more aware than i ever thought she was and um and it while i was in that model unit and i'd go out after a shift and drink with boston police and whatever um, this one night, um, I got so drunk and we had take home cruisers. I got so drunk that Boston police had to drive me home and one of their officers drove my cruiser to my house. Okay. And when I got home, I went in the back door and standing there in front of me was my wife, a suitcase and, uh, a sergeant from the EAP unit. Hmm. So unbeknownst to me, she had um, 
been talking with him for a while, and they set this up. Mm-hmm. And uh, my options were to get out and go to a hotel or go with him. Okay. And uh, I, I opted to go with him. How many years were you on the job at this point? Uh, about 10, about 10 years on the job. So it had been gone for a, quite a right. while, you know. Um, that was a, a rehab facility on down on Cape Cod that I went to. Um, I ended up coming out of that thinking I had this hill uh, in check, only to go back about five months later. As I was warned not to do, it says like you, it's cafeteria style. You go in and you like what you hear and you do that, and you don't like something else you hear, don't do it. <laughs> and I, I ended up going back into that same facility about five months later. At the end of my 28-day cycle there, I was uh, and agreed to go into this halfway house. And it proved to be a life-changing experience in numerous ways, but probably the most uh, valuable one was that everybody in that program had either been in jail or was currently a federal parolee like out, out on a bracelet to go through that program. And wow. I was the only cop there. Wow. Now, nobody advertised that I was a cop, but mm-hmm. they all figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't. Probably you, pretty quickly, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. I, yeah. I don't, I think I could spot him. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason it was such a valuable experience, not only did I continue kind of developing my course of, uh, you know, sobriety, or the, 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 the travels I'm going to have to take to get sober and stay sober. It was that I witnessed so many people that had nothing, Hmm. that had no job, no family, nowhere to live, and I saw them fighting to get sober and clean. Sure. And and it really, I had, it had two effects. It put me in a, honestly, into a depression Mm -hmm. because I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't make sense of it. And. It was the first time in my life that I think I humanized criminals more because yeah. now I'm in there. Right, right there position. with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Didn't matter. No. And, um, but I gained a respect for, for other people. And then, but it depressed me because at first that was a hard thing for me to accept. And um, Was some of it the fact that here these people are with nothing and I'm in here with them, and I have so much with my family, my job, everything. Yes, because I had to, I had to acknowledge that I had so much more than them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in early sobriety, I was relatively frequently feeling sorry for myself. Sure. You know, because um, it, it was, you know, alcoholism is a self-centered activity. Yes. And you do that long enough— you know, you're looking at everything through the same filter. Mm-hmm. And um, so I I just am very, I once heard somebody at a meeting say um, that they were very grateful they'd become an alcoholic and got sober because they 
they looked at things differently. I'm like, I'm sitting there saying, you are full, so full of shit. What are you talking about? <laughs> Nobody wants to go through this. Right. Today I can sit there and say, I agree with him and I'm, I'm with him. After how many years of sobriety? I'm sober 23 years now. Wow. Is it a struggle at all this far out? For the longest time it wasn't um, until I retired. Okay. And since then, I've been retired a little over three uh, three years now. Um, a, a lot of things changed in my life. I was home more. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't. I, you, you you lose all of what being a trooper gives you. Mm -hmm. um, you're away from people that, quite frankly, I was with much more than I was my own family. Sure. Um, so there was a lot of adjustment that I had to go through. Um, and I, you know, it's like I've put my, my family, especially my wife now on edge. Cause is he going to go back out? Is it, you know, is this going to be a lifelong thing that we're going to struggle with? And, and, um, you know, we were continuing having children and, and at the time of my retirement, I've, I am fortunate enough to say I had 11 children and I have 20 grandchildren. You, you have what? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I meant to warn you ahead of time. Yeah, I thought I, I want to study nine this man. I, that's before. what I. That's what I think. I told you. Yeah. I forgot it was eleven. I, yeah, I want to study this man. <laughs> eleven yes. children, yeah, children, and twenty grandchildren. Yeah. Wow, that's and not, amazing. And, and let me make this clear to the audience: it's not like some of my people out here. He didn't get divorced, marry right. a younger woman, and have two families. No, this is all one, one wife. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I can, <laughs> and I do credit my wife for this, our marriage lasting as long as it did. There was still, sure. even in sobriety uh, of from alcohol, there were other parts of life that were, I was using to make up for them not having the alcohol. Mm-hmm. And sex was one of those. And, you know, you can't. You lost 11 children. Yeah. <laughs> I was just substituting one addiction for another. Sure. You know, and, um, but she, she found out uh, and, and she accepted the fact that uh, she wanted to, well, she, come up with the idea that she wanted to keep the marriage together for the kids. Mm -hmm. She did not want to hurt the kids with what she had found out. And um, I, I, I can't imagine what that was like for her. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I created another addiction, which was I got into a different kind of a unit. It was a homicide unit, and I put every ounce I had in my body into that. And I now know that it was taking away from my family. Um, but, so that became another addiction of sorts. But was it the kind of thing where she told you, we're going to make this marriage work, but you're going to stop that behavior of other people? She said to me, uh, she said, if you're going to do that again, Mm -hmm. And you at least respect me enough to tell me. And, and that brought a whole new twist onto, for me, onto how I had harmed her. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and disrespected her from her perspective, which is reality. Sure. Um, and it, it brought into what I was doing a little more of a realistic focus, um, and that this willy-nilly crap of I'm not hurting anybody and I'm not spending money and all that um, was just my own justifying what I wanted to do. Um, so after the experience in that in that uh, home, I was there for six months, and then I went to a halfway house and then transitioned back home and into, into working again. And throughout that experience, my kids were very supportive as best they could. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I, I, I thought that I wasn't doing anything to hurt anybody. And one time I was having a conversation with my wife, Kathy, while I was away still, and, and she was updating me on the different kids. And uh, so my youngest son is Kevin. I said, well, she hadn't brought him up yet. I said, well, how's Kevin doing? And he said, well, he was asking about you the other day. I told him that you're sick and you're away getting some help. And he said to her, oh, does that mean that dad's going to do what he says he's going to do from now on? Wow, that's mm -hmm. a that's an eye-opener. Yeah. Yeah, that one floored me. Yep. That one floored me because that instantly <laughs> took away anything of, like, I'm not hurting anybody. Exactly. Had yeah. it even occurred to you that you were doing that with him? That you were telling him a lot of things you were going to do that you weren't doing. Well, it wasn't just him; it was all of the kids, right? right? But I, I, yeah, I guess I, I, I was conscious of it, but I justified what I was doing to be more what I needed and more, you know, they'll understand. And, right. But honestly, when when she said that, that, that was just the first time that I actually, I was floored. I was like, wow, oh my gosh, you know. And then, of course, I'm thinking, well, what have the other kids seen, heard, not done, whatever? How do they feel, you know? And thankfully, I I took that as motivation to um, continue to stay sober, to work at staying sober. And um, so alcohol-wise, I stayed sober. Other activities, I didn't. But, um, you know, eventually it was, you know, I, uh, there were so many people that were put in my life that were calling me out on things mm -hmm. that I was starting to kind of get it. And um, I remember at one meeting, uh, I had a very old man as a sponsor, and he'd been in AA 40-plus years. And I'm listening to speakers, and we go to meetings, I'm listening to speakers, and there was one meeting, this, this guy was speaking, and I just connected so much with him. I was hearing him describe how his drinking had affected him and, uh, and, and how he discovered things that he needed to remember to get, keep getting sober. And I turned to my sponsor and I said, I, I kind of get it now. He said, what? I said, this is about feelings. And, that and F I, word yeah. everybody loves in law enforcement. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, ah, you're finally getting it finally getting it i didn't like the i didn't like acknowledging feelings and, <laughs> come on man i, I need that's to deal the worst with that f shit. word y'all can hear <laughs> it's just too easy to put those to the side yeah. and pack them away yeah. uh anyway as 
sobriety eventually started impacting me in other areas, especially after my wife found out about what I had done and, uh, and what she said to me about her and, and respecting her and about what I had, my Kevin, my, my son's perspective on life as pertaining to me. Um, and I ended up, you know, carrying out my career. And towards the end of my career, I was grateful that I was um, sober, but I, like really sober. And I uh, got to work with some really young guys and girls that I thoroughly enjoyed working with. Uh, police, the policing environment, the management style in policing was drastically changing mm -hmm. uh, into from something that uh, was very supportive and very rank structured and you knew what was coming at you from where in other words it was from the colonel the lieutenant colonels on down today it's like coming at you from politicians and bean counters and so right. forth because <laughs> the media and the public yeah because they have the puppet strings on on these leaders and it's it's still the leader's fault they they have the ability to stand up and say no I, this yes. this isn't going to work but yep. they're finding it easier and and that trickled down into morale on the job. Um, there were some times that I um, I just felt I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't work for these guys anymore. Mm -hmm. And But I also didn't want to leave because I had these young guys and I felt an obligation to like, you know, mm -hmm. help help them and, and do, do for them what I could. What is a retirement for Massachusetts State Troopers? 20? No, you have to do 20 or you have to do more? Minimum is 25. Okay. 25, 75. So you get 75% of your pay. The longer you stay, the the more percentage you get. Um, and then um, there is no retirement age up until this date anyway. Uh, as long as you can pass your PT tests, your firearms qualifications and so forth, uh, you can stay on the job, which is not a good thing for the job. And PT, you do every trooper does a PT test every year, or what's the? Well, it's supposed to be every year, but oh yeah, that usually, ain't happening in Arizona. Yeah, it usually gets well. It was part of the contract, um, and and they also provided um, uh, the ability if you fail that test twice, you could be assigned to the headquarter to the training facility to just work out and then eventually get to take that that um, that test again and go back into the field or you'd have to, you know, if it's medically related, forced retirement. Wow. Yeah. Shows a sign of caring about their people, though. You know, it's yeah. not like just wham, bam, you're out the door. Right. Interesting. Well, and I heard you say earlier, not during this, but that the union's back East are stronger than out here. And that's, yes. in fact, true. That's, yeah, that's a huge factor. Yeah, yeah, right. It is. It is. And, you know. Which is probably why you're going for treatment twice, I assume, and living in a halfway house for that length of time, I assume, didn't affect your job? It did not. Um, but that was because the sergeant from EAP that I was dealing with and my wife was dealing with, he navigated it to be that way. Okay. And he, um, he had a uh, he had a terrific attitude with the people that he worked with, but also with uh, command staff. And uh, 
you know, there would be times where the command staff would know something about one person having doing certain things wrong and they kind of wanted to go after them and all that. And uh, the sergeant would be dealing with those people. And, you know, at times the command staff would go to him and say, look, let this guy, we, we need this guy. We want this guy. We want to bring him up in a, on a court martial and we want to have a trial board for him. And, and, uh, and his response was, um, you know, you pay me to keep you out of the papers and out of the media. <laughs> Good approach. So you can either <laughs> let me work with this guy and just kind of leave us alone, or if you force my hand, he's, he's going to be your problem. And if that goes, you know, some sideways on you, you know, you got, you got what you asked for, right. really. So they left him with a lot of leeway. And um, This explains a lot about someone else I dealt with who was part of EAP in Massachusetts that they had no clue of when we talk about EAP out here. Right. It, it, you couldn't be farther apart, it, it, totally different, apples mm. and oranges, same name. Two entirely different worlds. Yeah, because every time you say EAP, I'm thinking how it is out here. Yeah, it's and it's yeah. Well, like the management style and and uh, law enforcement is changing, so isn't the abilities of EAPs. Right. So what I had afforded to me, I highly doubt someone's going to get today. Really. Yeah, and and it's um, it, it, now they they want to put a notch in their belt. It's almost like the more people you can suspend and fire, mm -hmm. the better off, the better leader I am, which is it's just the opposite is exactly. true. Uh, the more people you, you can you can help to retain their position, do their job, do it well in a healthy way. Yeah, those are the notches that you want to keep. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But, but this EAP guy, he was actually a trooper. Yeah, he was a sergeant. Yeah. See, yeah, EAP out here is just a list of. Licensed mental health people. Yeah, yeah no. That is the EAP program. No, so, back, back yeah. home uh, for the state police, they have their own EAPs situated, I think, in three different uh, postings, if you would, throughout the state. Um, and they, <clears throat> they were given, he earned the right or the ability for them to get a lot of leeway. Sure. Because sure. he, it, it was, it was actually, a, like the command staff could see what he was doing mm -hmm. uh, resulted in less issues for them. Absolutely. And then getting good people who had some issues in their life get back to work and be successfully doing their job again. And um, and no one's the wiser in a sense. Sure. You know, um, he helped keep families together. Yeah. And uh, shouldn't that be the right, objective yeah. here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, he helped me keep my family together. Yeah, you know, and um, and I, and, you know, I'm grateful my wife called him and got involved. Sure, that was a big step for her. Yeah. Sure, and uh, she had more courage than I did, and uh, because of that, you know, we we have the life we have. Mm -hmm. um, my last year of working uh, was the breaking point for me. Um, there was a fatal shooting of a canine officer down on Cape Cod, and his dog got shot but lived. And at that scene, 
the command staff, the troop, never showed up. Wow. Which is unheard of. Wow. The people that I had started with and all, because they should be showing up just simply to say, we're here to support you. What do you need? Do you need bodies? And, you know, a trooper can't offer that, really. I'm surprised they didn't show up because the media is going to show up. That's a lot of the motivators sometimes. (laughs) It just shows the mentality. And then there was a, a... Two officers shooting at another department wasn't fatal, but they never showed up for that. And then there was a, uh, a, I was working on a Sunday morning, an overtime shift. I was still in in my town, Weymouth, and um, a call came out for an officer down in Weymouth. And um, I have two sons that are on that job. And... um, I knew it wouldn't have been one of them, but it, it was potentially one of the other ones who worked a day shift. And, and what is your job with the troopers at this point? I was a patrol supervisor okay. so, in uniform at that okay. point. So I responded to the scene, um, and the victim, uh, the police officer that was shot, uh, was a, a guy that I, that I knew. Mm-hmm. I, knew his fa- I knew his parents. I knew his family. Um, his brother played ball with some of my boys and all that. So, um, that, that was a day where I kind of, I just knew that I had to get off the job Mm -hmm. because once again, command staff never came in. I, as a sergeant, was a ranking off state police officer on that scene and that never, never should happen. Wow. (laughs) And you think that's still probably ongoing? Oh yeah, well, I I do know that the, the I said something um, at the funeral for this officer to a lieutenant colonel about that, and um, and he he wasn't in a position to tell me, oh, I'm going to go do something about this or this is you know whatever. He just acknowledged that he heard me, and that was it. And then I heard. Three days later, he called that major in, in there. You know, so what happened? What he did said to him, I don't know. Right. Um, to get back to that shooting, though, um, the the perp in this case was a uh, Hispanic kid that uh, actually went to school with my youngest daughter, and a year before this incident, my daughter had texted me one day, and said his this get you know typed his name and said dad you guys got to be watching out for this guy he's bad he's really bad and um so i checked with my boys and, and some of the other detectives and they all knew him he they he was well known to them and um that call originated with a from a minor motor vehicle accident where one operator fled and the direction of flight was given. And that's where the officer that got shot went to. That's that's the direction he headed in. And when he got there, he was the first literally on scene, if you would. He There's another call coming out for a, a broken window in a house. Somebody just broke a window in the house. So he gets out of his cruiser and he's, he's uh, now sees this kid coming at him. And it was a witness that was coming out his front door that was maybe 20 yards away. He just saw this whole thing. So 
Uh, and he said that, that the officer had drawn his weapon, but it was down by his side. And that the perp had a boulder in his hands. And he kept approaching the officer, and the officer was, you know, tell him, put the boulder down, put the boulder down. But his weapon stayed at his side. And this was a combat veteran. This was a guy who had been on the job for six years. Uh, he, was, he wasn't uh, unfamiliar with dangerous situations and, and, and the concepts behind, you know, you have a, a rough right to defend yourself and defend the right. public and all. Sure. And, uh, but he hesitated. And the, the kid threw the rock, hit him off the head, and hopefully knocked him out. But he went down. The kid went over, took his gun from out of his hand, and uh, shot him three times in the face and five times in the chest. And then as that kid is walking away, he was heading in between some other houses. Another officer came around the corner, shot through his windshield at him, and they got him in the leg, you know, but it didn't stop him. So he went through some yards and he saw a an older woman who was standing in her slider window just looking outside and probably didn't even know there was something going on the street over and he shot her and killed her. Wow. And then he came out with his hands up and all that. Oh yeah. Because he ran out of ammo. Yeah. But so as the day went on, um, uh, you know, I ended up kind of doing different things at the scene, at the hospital, whatever. And um, I went up to the hospital and I saw, um, I went to the room where they were working on this officer and I, uh, one of my daughters works at the hospital. And um, she, all of a sudden I feel someone pushing me and it's her. And she's coming in carrying a, a cooler with blood in it. And she stops because she saw me and she said, Please tell me it's not John or Tim. And I said, no, it's not. It's not. So she's bawling her eyes out. They're all crying because they all know this kid. The hospital's in the same town we work in. She drops off her blood. She comes back out. I give her a big hug, you know. And it's kind of, we, we can forget how other people are impacted by things that we can tend to look at how they impact us, sure. right. right? The department, the guys in the department, his friends, other police officers and all that. But like the dispatches, yep. like they're stuck. They can't come to the scene. <laughs> right. Exactly. They can't get out. They can't, but they're feeling because they know this guy and sure. they, you know, um, and it was very impactful on that emergency room staff, yep. you know, and, uh, Later on, a doctor had, had said that um, he'll never forget Mary. Mary was my daughter because the blood was stored in one building, had to cross the street to go to the ER. Running across the street, carrying a, a cooler of blood, bawling her eyes out. And he said that he'll never forget that. And it's very real for them. Sometimes we all think that they're distant and kind of shatterproof and all that. No pun. Right. Uh, and, well, it got to the point where uh, two things had a bigger, a big impact on me after I saw my daughter. Uh, one was they were calling in that the, an ambulance was coming with the, the suspect who had been shot in the leg. And I went out to where that ambulance was pulling up. And the doors opened, and I had my hand in my gun. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm like, just do it. Just do it. Everybody's going to be happy that you did it. Just do it. And it was like this absolute agonizing, like, wrestling match in my head. And um, I didn't do it. And truthfully, I, I later on this, it was uh, really initiated a developing uh, opinion of myself to be a coward. I really did believe that I was a coward. I wasn't strong enough to do what at that moment I thought was absolutely the right thing to do. Because he came into the ER, he's effing this, effing that, you know, and uh, whatever. It's just like, and these people in the ER that have been dealing uh, with the, with Michael, with the officer, now have to deal with him. Yes. And that's where I think we have to remember, like, these people, they go through every bit, if not more than we. Right. Because they got to be hands-on. They, they got to be touching him. They got to. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> uh, af- after that, uh, I was talking to one of the supervisors and I from Weymouth, and I said, hey, has anyone gone up to his parents' house yet? And... Uh, and he said, no, no. I said, we can't let the media tell them this is going on. And he said, I got no one to go. I said, I'll, I'll go up. I'll go. And I took a female Weymouth officer with me. And we went up to notify them, Chuck uh, and Mimi, that their son had been shot. And I knew he was dead, but we didn't say that. We just said he's been shot. But the, even before I said a word, she opened the door and she just, she just screamed. She screamed and she called for her husband. Um, and then I brought Chuck, who I knew, uh, up. You know, I just told him his son's been shot. He's asking me on the way, is he alive? Is he? I said, Chuck, they're working on him. They're working on him. And uh, I don't have an, a status right now. You know, you bring him into the hospital and you bring him up to where um, Michael was at, and at that time they had stopped working on him. And you know, it was it was uh, it was tough to uh, for him to kind of even grasp, you know. Sure. Yes. And um, the fallout, if you would, from that was that everybody just knew that he hesitated because of the the environment of the society now sure. mm-hmm. of the of the um, what what uh, an officer who is in a position where they have to use deadly force is scrutinized yep. is is mm-hmm. all these different things and he left a wife and two kids he didn't mean to he didn't want to right right but he definitely hesitated the chief of that at that time even in a eulogy said said so said that that's everybody's belief you know which brings in a whole nother dynamic to that you know well and to be honest i'm sitting here when you're telling the story and i wonder what most cops would do here in arizona if somebody's picking up a boulder or whatever because i think society would probably go that's not a lethal threat exactly (laughs) I, i really think they'd think that right and, you, you know, you just go, it's not as black and white and cut and dry as people, no. as I wish it could be, right. but it's not. Yeah. But then you have some of these um, district attorneys that 
agree. Yeah. That's that doesn't seem like it'd be a lethal situation. Right. This cops out of policy, yeah. obviously. Because yeah. they're they want to they're gauging the flavor of the exactly. day, if you will, yeah. in society. Yeah. And they want to appease them. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they want to do, which goes back to a leadership type thing. Yeah. And uh and you know, but um that was my last draw. And um in September uh, of that same year I, I retired because um, the job had changed so much and I could see the writing on the wall that it was going to continue changing and get worse and worse. And uh, after I retired, I kind of wrestled with, did I, you know, did I get out too early? What about the young kids and all that? But um, boy, I had so many people tell me that I did the right thing Mm -hmm. who was still on the job and trying to get off. Uh, And in this environment, the problem is, you couldn't even go into training and train them the right way because that conflicts with what society says and right. district attorneys are saying and chiefs and colonels and sheriffs, some, yeah. um, are saying. So it isn't even like you could take your 32 years of experience and go into the academy and make sure they don't hesitate because that violates the environment. No, the, the academies had changed yes. into a, 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 where the graduates would come out uh, and I actually I heard this on a call one night. Um, this new guy had stopped uh, a pickup truck on a road that was leading from Massachusetts down into Connecticut. He gets out of his cruiser to uh, approach the vehicle. As he's approaching the vehicle, the vehicle takes off. He gets back in his cruiser. He chases down. And just before the Connecticut line, for some reason, the guy pulls over. So he pulls over, and he's called in his location at all and he gets out of his cruiser and he's he's broadcasting everything that's going on mm-hmm. i'm out of my cruiser now okay uh sir you need to get back in your truck sir stay where you're at you need to get back in your truck sir turn around put your hands behind. on and on making these requests mm-hmm. and eventually the guy i believe it's because he heard other cruisers coming eventually he did kneel down and so as we listened to it, there was some young guys in my barracks around. I said, what do you guys think? He did, how do you do? He said, he did textbook. That's exactly what you're supposed to do. And I said, you guys couldn't be more wrong. Yep. <laughs> yep. I said, to do it that way, that means half his brain is on that guy, but the other half is I have to broadcast. I have right. to cover my ass. I have to get this recorded so they know I didn't make a mistake. Yep. And that... That is just opening the door to get him hurt, himself right. hurt. Because his time to react, if that guy had pulled out a gun or whatever, is is diminished because his head's not 100%. Right. He's not focused sure. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Do they not use body cams up there? They have them now. now when I was on the job, didn't. they did not. Yep. No. yep. And uh, Maybe that's one plus, but I still find officers have attitudes Um, because I teach in some of the academies here, and I still hear officers say things like they believe the person has to shoot at them first before they shoot. And I'm like, whoa, who told you that? Right, right. But I'm not surprised that that's how they think about it. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not either. And the other thing, I I do not think body cameras in any way, shape, or form are good for law enforcement. And the reason is um, I believe... People, which troopers are people, they play to the camera. Mm-hmm. 
And again, it's on their mind. Like, I have to be really careful what I say. And I have to, right. and not every person responds to the exact same tone and commands. And, you know, sometimes you have to step it up. Oh, absolutely. Right. No and, question. You know, and again, if you're thinking about it's getting recorded. Right. You know, sure. So um, I don't, I don't think they're, they, they make politicians and, and the public feel good about something that they have limited at best knowledge on, but have total ability to make decisions about. Oh, I've, it's, it's, it's better that you have to wear a camera. Now we're going to know what you're doing. Yeah. It's like, but you haven't walked in his shoes or her shoes. Sure. You haven't done that job. You haven't, you have no clue, even though you believe you do. I have mixed feelings about him because it doesn't get peripheral. It, it's, it's a very singular, you know, attitude and environment, but out here, there are so many issues with, um, like Maricopa County Sheriff's Department is under the DOJ. And so without body cams, there's a lot of deputies who wouldn't have their jobs right now because yeah. you can make an accusation, and that is hard, steadfast, it happened, mm -hmm. and the body cam can show it didn't happen. So in that regard, out here, it, it has saved some people's jobs. Right. Um, but I get where you're coming from, and I agree with you. And the and the cameras have been shown also because they don't show a wide angle of what's happening. It can also make a situation look bad that's not bad. You know, it, I'm sure that every change has some positives about it, but uh, I know there are times where an officer has that camera off and in order to have it record he has to engage he has that. to remember to do so it. if all of a sudden the shit show shows up right in front of him yep he he, he can't buy time out guys i can't get my gun because i got to turn the yep. camera right. on yep and and if he doesn't turn that camera on yep he is crucified absolutely no doubt yeah he's gonna get chewed up well here's my attitude if cops are wearing body cams i want every citizen out here wearing a body cam <laughs> Let's see what you're they doing. Are. It's called a cell phone because anytime yeah, want... they have police interaction, all they do is yeah. But I want to hang around us. their neck, and I want it to automatically turn on with right. every word they say. Yeah. Um. Maybe that would uh, curb some of the society's stupid yeah. out here. But you know, just an idea. It's just a yeah. thought. <laughs> it won't ever happen, right. but it's still a thought. Um. But to get back to my journey, if you would, was as I was when I was still on the state police, um, you know, there were, life is life, and there were things that happened in my family. Mm -hmm. um, and I share this because I've found by sharing this that other first responders have then felt more confident and, and to share things that they had gone through, and in some cases that they never thought they'd even speak about again. Yeah, they're not the only ones these right. things have happened to. Right. And right. that's how you do tend to feel. Sure do. Um, yeah. So um, I I had a uh, my best friend at that time. Um, our families are very close. And uh, um, as time went on, um, I had no idea, but like we'd be having family picnics and he'd be holding her hand and she was just a girl. And, and as the, you know, things like that, and she always felt uncomfortable, but she didn't think it ever got to that. I can tell somebody, I, you know, he 
he's really not doing anything wrong, but what's going on? And uh, she ended up, she was working at a, at, a, at a hospital in a different kind of a job, but he started stalking her there. And this is somebody she's known her whole life as a family friend. And then he sexually assaulted her. Hmm. And, you know, it's, I, I felt that I had a lot of confidence in dealing with situations, but boy, when it's your family. It's a whole nother level. Well, it's and not just, just your family, but it's almost like two family members Yeah, that this is right. happening. Yeah. 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 So we severed that relationship and we did what we could to, help my daughter it's still she's 34 now and it still bothers her tremendously she doesn't believe uh, and i think accurately that his kids know what he did and um, we had opted to tell his wife only and my wife and her were cousins so she told that woman and then that was it we know i i went to his house that morning and i confronted him, his kids were looking out the window, but I didn't say anything in front of them. And uh, and that's the last time I've seen him. Uh, what did he, did he deny it to you? What, I mean. He started to apologize. Oh, okay. And I said, I don't want to hear a word. I just, mm-hmm. you know, I had my say and I told him what would happen if he was around again. And um, I want, I kind of wanted to focus on my daughter and we now, because of how she feels all these years later, we regret not telling his whole family. Sure. And I, I now look at it like they had a right to know. Sure. And maybe there was an obligation to tell them because now they have grandchildren. Is he still doing something? What's going on? Um, anyway, another- Did he pay any consequences? No. No. And- I, I don't know. I don't know why we didn't bring it to a place that I now think we should have, but we didn't. Um, well, my hat's off to you for the self-restraint. Yeah, for not killing them. Yeah. Well, that that's a point I'll get back to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, another, a couple of years later, I had another daughter that was gone, had gone to school down in South Carolina. She was going to a Lutheran school and and actually because it was she she wasn't lutheran she's catholic but because it was a religious based educational facility there was a level of um comfort that she was that far away from home and all that and i'd like to say this as a south carolinian this story has made me so embarrassed for my home state Mm -hmm. that there are people who handled this situation the way that they did Mm -hmm. So she wasn't at school for maybe a, a couple of months, and um, she was at a party uh, one night, and uh, she's kind of a timid girl, but she was making an effort to meet more people and, and all that. And, and uh, anyway, during the course of this party, uh, this kid grabbed Emily and brought her into a room, locked the door, and then raped her. And... I didn't find out about this immediately because she, she didn't know what to do. Sure. You know? And uh, short, shortly thereafter, though, I, I did find out. And I, I flew down to 
South Carolina, and I brought one of my other daughters with me. And I contacted the local police, and I said, you know, what's going on with this? And they told me, well, this is, nothing's going on. This is a he said, she said. It happens all the time at parties. And I said, no, that's, you have, you know, I, I kept insisting, you've got to do it. You at least owe her. Exactly. Yep. As a citizen, your obligation is to, she's telling you a, a, a crime occurred. Yep. And you have to investigate it. Yeah. Right. Anyway, they did a polygraph and this kid, he failed it. He wrote out a statement in which he implicated himself. And, um, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing for my daughter by encouraging her to let's keep this in the process so that we can get him uh, properly. Yeah. You know, and and it will be it would go towards her healing process, if you would. Um, and we had gone back over the next few months, numerous times for hearings and so forth. And the last that what now is the last time I was down there, I the victim witness advocate came over to me and and said, "Look, it, I, I don't want to I don't want to lead you down a road that you know isn't true." He said, "They're not going to prosecute this kid." And I'm like, I, they, they have to. The evidence is all there. Grand jury's already indicted them. They wow. have to. And um, he said, well, your daughter's from the north. He's from the south. And they're not going to prosecute him. And I, and I said, no, I don't believe you. I think we're going to make this go through. <laughs> Never and, knew geographic location yeah. had anything to do with guilt or innocence. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, about two weeks later, I got a call from the DA's office. It wasn't that man. It was somebody else. And they, they informed me that they were not going to prosecute. Okay. And um, Did they give you a reason? They, they just, uh, honestly, they, they probably did. But as soon as I heard they weren't going to prosecute, right. that's, I just was red. Yeah. You know, like, so maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. I, 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 don't, know. I don't know. Yeah. Unbelievable. And um, <laughs> honestly, I, I will say that the, the police department, I'm embarrassed to have them as brother officers yeah. with what I witnessed. And I regret putting my daughter through Months. more trauma after yeah. the, the, about the worst thing that can happen to a, a person right. happened to her. Um, anyway, we ended up trying to move on with that. And and look, I'm okay if you want to throw that DA's name right out on this <laughs> on this podcast. I'm all good with it. I'll, I'll give it to you later on. You do with it as you see fit. Well, we'll talk about it then. Because <laughs> <laughs> we ain't scared and yeah. we ain't worried about it. Facts are facts. And, you know, I'm sorry, but we need to shed light on on people like this. Yeah. Just like that loser out in L.A. who used to be a chief in Mesa. <laughs> Gascon, whatever the hell his name Gascon. is. Gascon. Yeah, he needs he needs to go away. But no, I got no problem putting it out there. So, like I said, don't feel like you have to announce it, but don't think you have to hold back if you want to tell what agencies and whatever. It is what it is. Right. I agree. Um, anyway, <clears throat> Emily came home and we were, um, you know, she was getting her life back together and so forth. And, um, she took a job uh, working on a, on, a, on a boat that did party cruises and stuff. She loved the job, loved the people she was working with. So after a while, you know, on a Saturday night, they went out 
as young people should do and do do, that work together and all. And as the night went on, her coworkers couldn't find her at one point. They didn't know where she went. And um, it went on for long enough that they couldn't find her that I got a call. And I went into Boston, which is where she was at, I, where they were at. And um, I, I was just trying to get, I was getting guys from the state police involved. I was trying to just see what's going on. And a few hours later, she was found in an alley, partially clothed with bruising on her neck. She had been raped again. She was unconscious, and she had been raped again. Jeez. And it's like, I, I, the only way I can just, like, make sense in my head why I was hanging in there was I was so desperate to keep her together. Sure. And I was so desperate to also keep my family together because this is impacting all of us. Sure. And the dynamics behind Emily, even like being embarrassed or in her mind embarrassed of because what's happened to her and she's all these things. And by the way, I'm happy to report she's happily married with two kids. So awesome. she's, she's doing better than dad is. Awesome. I can tell you that. <laughs> um, anyway, we got to this, uh, this weekend where my wife and I said, you know, what? let's get the whole family together. And let's let's put everything on the table so one person doesn't feel they don't know what everyone else knows and all that. So we were doing that. And during that family meeting, um, my oldest daughter all of a sudden blurred out. She said, you know, Emily, I, I know what you're going through because I was raped at my senior prom. And we never knew that. <laughs> and... You just kind of go through life in a fog, if you would. Um, I, 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 I still stayed as centered as I could on on um, my girls and on my family. But I made a promise to myself that I would kill the people that did this to my kids. Mm -hmm. And I justified my not going and doing it right away because of my need to be home and be with kids and be around them and guide them and all that. And I know where all of those people live and I know I know how to get rid of evidence and all that kind of stuff there. But I vowed that I would do that. And um, that that never goes away. It's nope. always there. Um, yep. And I in 2020 um, there was kind of a lot of things that were hitting me early 2020. It was, uh, it was COVID time, but nothing to do with COVID. It really didn't. It had and to you're do retired. With, I'm retired. I got more time on my hands. Sure. Um, and I had been seeing a therapist because I had started to have depression, depression and, and, uh, things like that early in the year. And, um, she, put me on some medication that seemed to be helping some. She was very helpful. Um, and she, she just had a gift to kind of, for me anyway, that she was, she's a very young lady, but she, she, um, 
it was a good fit. And uh, <clears throat> as I was, you know, going along, I just developed this anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, it came out of nowhere. And I, I never understood the impact of a panic attack until that night and when it hit me. And I just, I wanted to die. I wanted to, I couldn't stop my head. I just couldn't stop it. And it, it really. Um, it's all consuming. Yeah. And when my wife woke up, I said, I need to get to a hospital now. And um, so we did. We, I got to a hospital and I ended up getting admitted to the site there and I spent uh, I think it was two weeks 14 days there and I came out with you know stronger diagnosis of what I'm going through and all that and um, I continued working with my therapist and all that and things got better mm-hmm. and things got better as time went on and, and um, just prior to that in 2019, there was a very significant uh, set of circumstances and, and difficulties that one of my daughters was having with her husband, and she put him out of the house. It had to do with drinking, but some other stuff as well. And uh, I went into rescue mode like we all tend to do, right? <laughs> and I went to uh, I went to uh, their house to stay there because and help my daughter. During that time, she got so depressed, she became suicidal. So we got her to the hospital. And I'm, you know, the resentments towards my son-in-law were building and building and building. And I was learning more and more about what's going on with the kids and different things that had happened. And, and um, I tell you, man, if you just get into kids' minds, life <laughs> life comes out in front of you. Yep. you know, one of their biggest concern, uh, issues, one of their biggest hurts was that he would go to uh, Dunkin' Donuts and get himself a coffee and something and not buy them anything. Not even ask. And can you imagine being like five years old, yeah. seven years old, and there's, that's happening to you? Mm-hmm. He was so self-consumed. Right. And... Uh, and that's just a mild example of things that were going on. Sure. And my daughter was pregnant at that time that she went into the hospital. And um, while she was in there, uh, the hospital was so good to her and us, but she miscarried the baby. And I, I have never seen pain, emotional pain and hurt, somebody's face like I saw that night and she was holding the fetus and um, the anger kept growing because again who should be there right he's not there um, and all this was still feeding into my my um, psychological health mental health at that time um, but summer of 2020 seemed to be I was going along pretty good. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I did forget one thing from a, from that first hospitalization. 
the the night that I had the panic attack was the night uh, Father's Day night. During the day, one of my daughters had the whole family over. We were all together. And I was in such a depressive funk that I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to touch anybody. And all my grandkids are running around and coming over to me and all. And I ended up putting one of my grandsons, who didn't speak at the time, onto a swing. And I stood there for two and a half hours just pushing him back and forth on the swing so I didn't have to go and do anything with anybody else. And it was that night that I went into the panic attack. And that that was something that started happening to me a lot, that I didn't want to be around anybody. I wanted to isolate just like I did when I was a kid. Yep. Wanted to just leave me alone, you know, and um, which was feeding my problems as well. Um, but you know, I thought we were giving it a uh, you know a good chance with my therapist, with my family, and all, and things were okay. And in the fall of uh, actually early winter of 2020, one of my daughters. Um, asked me if I'd speak to one of her friends who wanted some advice. And it was a pretty common thing for my kids to ask, you know, that wanted to, they'd come and talk to me and all that. And it was good. Mm-hmm. I felt good about it. And, and so I met uh, with this young lady and she went on to tell me, she's at that time 21, she went on to tell me that from the age of 11 to 16, her basketball coach, which progressed along with that group of girls. And he was also the softball coach, which she also played, had raped her repeatedly for all those years. And he he had brought another man in to participate as well. And one time she tried to get away and he dislocated her arm. And she said, I, I just, I couldn't get away anymore. Mm-hmm. And she didn't believe that her parents would believe her. And... So as I'm sitting there looking at this young lady and we're talking, I, I'm trying to come up with what, what's the best advice I can give. And I, I said, you know, essentially it was like, let's try to get you into therapy. Are you willing to go into therapy? Because right now there's really no other decisions you should be making, but your own safety and your own, how, how this is going to fit into your right. life. And, um, so she agreed. And so through my therapist, uh, we hooked her up with another therapist and but I, I something snapped in me and um I I, I it, it, that was it I was done with these types of people and I'd prosecuted many of them investigated them um so I had like this this understanding of the technical side of what these people do when they bury their porn and Mm-hmm. eight layers down and all this other stuff there and I'm but they don't stop mm-hmm. that that's just reality they don't stop right and they become cunning and they become patient and they become whatever but they don't stop right and this person's he lived in my town he his house back uh, backed up onto the schoolyard of an elementary school Ooh. and my <laughs> daughter one of my daughters lived within a half mile and had three daughters herself and I I got I I, I set up to kill him I, I said I'm done I'm, I'm done 
I'm not, I can't do this anymore and I can't let these people go. And I let the people that hurt my daughters, I didn't do anything about it, even though I promised that I would do it. And I, I'm like, I'm done. And I started following him and getting my plan into place and all that. And this is where I, I say with having worked with a, a therapist and letting, I let her in, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, I told her, I told myself I'd never, never lie to her because I, I figured if I did, she can't help she can't me. Help so you. so right. what's the sense? Right. Why, right. why do it? And um, I told her because I was seeking help to get another counselor, the story and, you know, um, and we were kind of contacting every two or three days at that point. She felt that was what was needed. And um, she could sense something was wrong, that that beyond what was already wrong. Yeah. Sure. You know? Since the change in you. Yeah. And one night I was in the schoolyard, and I was watching this guy. He was in his backyard doing something. And she called me. It was 8.30 at night. And I'm like, what the hell? What's she calling me now for? And uh, I said, hello. And she said, hi, John. How are you doing? I said, all right. And she said, where are you now? I'm like, how the hell did she know? Why are you asking me that? <laughs> she got a bird dog on his bumper. <laughs> but, but I'm also like, not only why are you asking me, now I'm conflicted with, do I tell her the truth or do yeah. I start lying? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> well, you see. <laughs> and I, I still in some ways regretfully, I told her where I was. And so she, you know, asked me to do some things and I did and make some promises and I didn't because I couldn't. And I said, I'm not going to make a promise that I can't keep, whatever. But that really sent me down lower than I already was because I really, really felt like a coward again, but much more of a coward. And I felt like an enabler because I'm enabling him to continue sure. because I'm not stepping up and doing something about it. And I assume there was no way to prosecute him because she w- of the time. Yeah, she wasn't right. No, no. There oh, were, there statute of the- limitations does not right. exist with uh, sex crimes. and and It does in some states. but It okay. doesn't up there. Okay. And uh, it's just, the only thing was it was so early in the game, she wasn't ready for that. Gotcha. And um, anyway, I, I, uh, I really was nosediving down with this whole situation and – my my kids got involved and they took guns out of my truck and all that kind of stuff there and and um, they were talking with my therapist. Um, I don't remember this, but apparently I gave one of my sons permission to call her or whatever. And uh, and so it got it it came to a head and um, essentially what she said was, um, you know, you need to go into a hospital. You have to go back into the hospital. Um, your mental health is just nosediving. Mm-hmm. And she said, please don't put me in a position where I have to call the police and say this is that you're homicidal. Sure. Said, please don't do that to me. I sure. don't want that to, to do that. But I have to if you don't, if I can't see that you're making right. You're not efforts. giving her another choice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so back into the hospital I went. It was uh, December 18th. And I was in there for um, 18 days mm-hmm. through the holidays and all. 
And at the end of that, we set up a game plan that I, I would get into a, a program that would be a first responder program um, that would be a little bit of a follow-up care in-house program. And it was associated with the hospital I was in. And um, they rejected me because they said I was too risk, too much of a risk. Wow. You know, homicidal and suicidal. Clearly, my family and everyone else that was helping to facilitate that were very upset. And a, a Boston police officer told my son, uh, John, my oldest, uh, about this place in Florida <laughs> that he had gone down and visited. Mm -hmm. And he said, we're going to get your dad down there. You're going to get your dad down there. Just like make some calls. And he did. And um, I got out of the, like, my son told me, Dad, we're lining things up. Don't worry about it. You're just going to be okay. Forget the other program. It's, it, it's nothing. It's gone. It's okay. And uh, so the day I got out of the hospital, John picked me up to my home so I could see everybody because that night I was flying down to Florida right. to this program called uh, Shatterproof. Yep. And um, and uh, everybody wanted me on that plane. <laughs> 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 they were all good with, I was just there for a quick lunch and then go. <laughs> um, I flew down that night, um, all kinds of crazy thoughts going on. What am I getting into? Why am I doing this? Uh, what, what about that guy? And all this other. I was just so full of rage and anger. Sure. And most of it pointed back at me. And uh, I, I I flew down by myself, but they told me they'd have an Uber, Uber driver picking me up. They gave me a phone number to call. I called them. And, and as it was, there was another um, police officer from Michigan that was there at the same time. So we were getting we were getting picked up by the same person. And his dad was there to accompany him to make sure he got to that Uber from Michigan. And he was so upset because in his check bag, somebody took his boot his his alcohol bottle out. <laughs> And he wanted to drink that from the airport. The last one in. <laughs> he was so upset. I had about this that. planned. Exactly. Because <laughs> that's going to make it better. Right, yeah. Uh, I, what I was told I was going to was Shatterproof, was mm -hmm. a first responder program uh, for substance abuse, mental health issues, trauma, what a, trauma whatever, yeah. And um, when we got there, you know, I quickly realized that I was, we, we have to go through an intake process, uh, one that's everyone's required to go through. I understand why. Sure. Because they they need to be uniform to keep their employees doing the right things, whatever. And, you know, all right. And it was essentially what would happen if I was going into a jail. Sure. And asking all kinds of questions and stuff like that. And then you're you're put into uh, uh, this the the people that are there that are not in a first responder group. They're just regular people, regular civilians, in that for their own recovery efforts. But you're put in there because it, that, that's a a detox phase. They want everyone to go through because sure. they can't take your word. You didn't sure do whatever. 
Well, they're also checking out the medical side. They don't want you to get down there and find yeah. out you got this heart condition and right, whatever. Right. So it's it's no, a actually now you mention it, they do they do an EEG and yep. all that stuff. Medical I forgot checkup. about that. Yep. But anyway, um, I got there on a Friday night and I'm having breakfast Saturday morning and the dog. I don't know what he saw in my chat, whatever. But he came over to me and he said, um, "You're going to be across the street pretty quick," which is where Shatterproof was. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I went over there that day, nice. which is unusual. Usually, they keep people two or three days or, or more. But they happened to be in bed, and he got me over there. Nice. And from a first responder standpoint, I am—I uh, have a lifetime of gratitude that I was there. Yes. And I am grateful they rejected me up at that other program. Yes. <laughs> and I would never recommend that to anybody to go there. Yep. Because of what I experienced in Shatterproof. Yes. Um, I had I had 20 plus years of sobriety at that point. And as it ended up, um, I was able to share some of my experiences and knowledge, if you would, with some of the people there. Uh, the Shatterproof program is set up in in a, in a way that we all house together. Um, and, and there's a, we have an area that nobody else can get on unless they're there in the Shatterproof program. Mm-hmm. There isn't a fence, but everybody in Shatterproof reminds people that come too close, get away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the rest of the population yeah. really doesn't want to, doesn't want to push that. No. <laughs> um, and so, I was down there and I was finding that I was, I was in a good way when I was in a sense, helping other people. Yes. Like, and I, like I couldn't see that they were taking what I was saying. It was like helping them a little bit and all that. But with myself, I was horrible. I just was, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't get a, I couldn't get it into my head that I had an option that made sense. That, and that brought this anger to a place where, okay, I'm okay now. It's manageable, right? Yeah. yeah I, I could not get there. And, and honestly, the people I was there with, I had, I had shared this story. The, mo- the day that I shared the story, we took a coffee break, and this guy walked up to me and he said, I'll be your alibi. And <laughs> <laughs> he had his name and number. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and he, uh, there was another guy that offered me a... Uh, a long range rifle with a silencer and they were serious because they understood um, as best they could what was going on, you know? Um, But some amazing things happened with all that. Um, We went back inside to that same group meeting and, uh, and there was a a man and a, who's a man in the army. I'll leave it at that. But he, um, he, he said, uh, he said, I, I got something I want to say. And um, he went on to talk about how he had been seriously molested as a child. And he had never told anybody that. And to the best of his knowledge, he didn't believe his mother knew or anything. And, and he said, I, I feel I can say that here because he was talking about me saying, you know, if you can say what you just said to people you don't even know, sure. I don't know why. I feel like, and he had been there 
for a few days before me. And I, I, I said, yeah, but you don't get it. I, I, I just, I should do something. I need to do something. I need to do something. And there was a woman in that same group, and she stood up, and she's looking at me. And she, she said, the only reason I'm going to say what I'm going to say is because of what you just said. Mm-hmm. And she told some very horrific things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I learned a big lesson that day. You know, and we get so focused in, in our own shit, our own soup. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, you just never know what you are going to do that can help somebody if you're taking the chance. Yep. If you're reaching out, if you're accepting, because it's one thing to reach out to ask for help, but you have to be willing to receive that help. Yeah. Sure. And the help not, has to be able to help. Well, yes, yeah, but their abilities mean nothing. If I'm, if I'm just sitting sure. there, I'm thinking about playing poker that night. Sure. You know, talk, it, it just doesn't work. Sure. You know, And I witnessed person after person after person that were really, it was a contagious environment that was happening. People were gaining um, positive outlooks, hope because of the experience we were having as a group yes. and the conversations that were taking place, uh, the level of understanding that was not only expressed, but was received. Yes. Um, it was, it was very, very powerful. I ended up being down there. I think I was in my fourth or fifth week and I was brought in, I was given a date of discharge and I, I went to the person running the program and I said, you cannot send me home because I am not any better with the issues that I were most paramount to me today than I was the day I got here. And, you know, we talked a little bit more and I, and I said, um, would you mind telling me if you were in my shoes and you were dealing with what I'm dealing with, what you'd be doing right now? Ooh. And she said, I'd be doing exactly what you're doing. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be out trying to get, continue to get help and all that. So I ended up staying another three weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in the seventh week that I finally got an ability to say, okay, I can't stay here forever. Right. And I do need to get home and and get back into life a little bit and all that, or a lot bit. And so um, I ended up, I ended up uh, heading home. But in those eight weeks, the the uniqueness of Shatterproof compared to other programs that I've never attended, but I am told, is that they, it, it's not just group meetings and you know an AA meeting at night or whatever. There is a, a system, a, a, an assortment of treatments that is afforded to everybody in Shatterproof program. And they're not, all of them are not afforded to the non-first responder groups because they just simply couldn't manage that um, people-wise. And, um, there were some of those treatment uh, treatments that were at, at best way out left field in my mind. Um, I, it takes too long to detail them all, but like 
breath work. That was breath work. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. when you find out breath work is laying down on a mat on a floor <laughs> with and, a bunch of other cops and and military and, military and everybody. And fire. Yeah. And uh, you know, she covers your eye with a towel, the eyes with a towel and she's playing music and she guides you into into this how you know, the pace of the breathing and all of this stuff and you and I'm laying there. This is a crock shit <laughs> <laughs> this is not this is not going to work and at some point during that session i don't know how long it was but all of a sudden i'm seeing people from the past that i've never thought of and i haven't thought of in years and and a lot of different things and and uh i had a total of five sessions with three group two with her um alone and it's in my experience, and then talking to other people that likewise had experiences, everyone's experience is a little different. Yep. Um, it's 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 crazy what we got at, you know. And, and I think they offer so many different types of things because everything isn't for everybody. Right. But boy, they got some powerful stuff down there. They do, and, and some of the best advice that it's given to any newcomer. Yes. Try everything, everything. no matter what. You can That's always exactly stop right. doing it, sure. but just try it. You know, yeah. yoga. And uh, the, the, I'd like to see John doing yoga. <laughs> I got I, it was the first time in my life I did it, and I I, I got pretty good at it I after about did. three weeks. I uh, I was able to do things some guys in their thirties couldn't. Do. Uh -huh. I was like, all right. But you, you were thinking it. it was bullshit in the beginning. I know what oh, you were yeah. thinking. I oh know. yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Yoga. Me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um. Anyway, I I was grateful that I tried everything. Yes. Uh, the neurotherapy, all of it. Yep. And and I, you know, you get to a point, you say, look, just believe what others others believe. They sure. wouldn't be doing this if they didn't think and believe and have evidence that it, it works. Sure. So uh, that part of my stay there, I, I, I was good at doing. I did try everything. But I, I had some really um, down days. Sure. Um, very, I, Part of the healing and right. the recovery. Yeah. yeah. But don't you think one of the greatest parts about it, and again, this is the program that we send everybody to, uh, that we can through insurance, but it is the fact that you are all there living together, doing group together. It, there's no civilians in there. It is a first responder military environment for those people. And it's not like it's two or three of you. <laughs> I don't think I've ever known of anyone to be there with less than 28 and right. how many were there when you were there? Actually, Probably it got up 30s. to like 38 because yeah. they they had some of the, the women that were there and they put them in a different segment, but together. And right. they would come over for meals and everything else. They weren't far away. Right. You know, they weren't far away. And now they've changed the living arrangement so they're all in one place. Yeah. And, and I, to your point, um, it was also, um, there was a difference for us, some spoken, some unspoken, but for the facilitators and so forth who were first responders previously in their life versus those who went to college and are now here. Yes. Uh, there was a there was a very clear disconnect. Yes. They did their best. Sure. But there was a disconnect and um uh, but overall I'm I'm the program was outstanding. But I, I think that's where having the group together can compensate right. even. Yes. Where that might not be as effective to have people 
doing group and things that aren't first responders. But the fact that y'all would sit out afterwards at night. Right. And how much healing do you think happened when you weren't in the therapies and therapy sessions that was, you know, foreshadowed proof where it was just the group of people outside talking and. Well, you're assigned a, a counselor when you get there. My counselor was also a psychiatrist. It just happened to be that way. Um, you got the facilitators. You've got other doctors that are monitoring what's going on, the treatment people, and so forth and so on. Um, the the biggest part of recovery for me, and I believe for everybody else that I was with, was the island. What yep. we, what we did there. Without a doubt. That's where they lived. Yeah. It's yeah. one building. and yeah. Without a doubt. There, there's, there was not one other aspect. And I'd go as far as to say, if I didn't have that, yes. I don't think the effectiveness of the other treatments would have been what they were. Quite the same. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And and that was where, you know, the, the rubber hit the road. It was just more sharing, mm-hmm. you know, because there were still some people that had things that but they didn't necessarily want to say in group, uh, really, it wasn't that they didn't want to say it in group. They didn't want to say it the first time in group. Sure. Sure. And I had I had um, the good fortune of several people, you know, they just wanted to talk. And it's like, if my daughter's around here, that they're sending me John, a John was the father <laughs> yeah. when oh, I was yeah. down there. Yeah. And, yeah, and you left that part out. What was the greatest thing that happened to you at Shatterproof? Yeah. It you was... met me. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great conversation. One, yeah, we did. One we morning. Did. I went and, over there uh, early and we sat outside and talked. And and the, these these people would, would share. And I I just I didn't realize it as much as I do now that at the time that they were gauging my reaction sure. as to whether that would down I kinda can share it with everybody. And it's a gift that was given to me that these people came and did that. And I was able to pass on Mm -hmm. my lessons learned in my own experiences in life in recovery and in having dealt with family trauma. Um, And and it was a very powerful part of my experience there. To your visit, um, Sue came in at night. She spoke to our evening group. And and um, at some where in that interlude, I asked if we could speak and get together. And thankfully, she came in the next morning. We wouldn't miss it. Are yeah, you kidding? We we sat and had coffee, and and she was very gracious and listening to my story, listening to what's going on, and and um, then she brought up. This this idea of the garbage can, and this idea that, I'm like man, this one's about as full as the one I've seen. And it was, you know, she made it a point that it wasn't a rubbish can. It wasn't. It was a garbage can, and, mm-hmm. and went through the the whole, uh, you know, why that's the case. And and it was the first time that that was the most impactful one. <laughs> thing. I'm not just saying this. It was the most impactful thing that I heard because it fit. Exactly. Something was making and you sense could just, to me. It's so relevant to what we do with all the crap that we see and experience. It's, I'm, I mean, just, it's crazy 
such a simple theory, how that describes it to a T. Yeah. Shocks you that I came up with I, that, doesn't it? <laughs> I have to commend you for that. I mean, it, it was it's it's such a good analogy. And it's a simple one. Right. Yes. It's not a it's not a right. You don't have to explain it. But as soon as you hear it, it for me, it was like, holy shit. <laughs> My garbage kale tipped over a long time ago. Honey, you had a trash compactor in yeah. that thing. Yeah. You were packing that stuff in there. But I, I, I don't remember where in my eight weeks there that was. It was, certainly was beyond the, the middle part. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, I, I think that was a big instrument where in the seventh week-ish, I kind of started getting to a point where I could go back home and, and, and uh, figure out things back at home and all that with proper help and all, guidance and all that. And... Um, I can't, I mean, I, I can only speak for the f effect on me. It was a massive effect that just that one conversation, that one, you know, a, a planting of a thought, of a, of a <laughs> concept in my head, and it was like, holy crap, you know? And uh, I didn't want to tell anybody else because <laughs> I, I wanted this to be my secret. <laughs> Uh, no, but I, because I, I, everybody sees them, we're, we're talking, right? Right. And and some some of the guys, you know, like what are we talking? About? I said, you ain't gonna believe it, man. But about garbage pills. <laughs> <laughs> crazy old woman had a pretty talking good about idea. Yeah. Yeah. Now what a, what an honor it was for me to come over there and spend that time with you. I I, I hate y'all had to go to to group and that I had to. I don't know if I was leaving that day or they had me doing something else, but. Yeah, I could have sat and talked to John all day. <laughs> I really could have, and it's uh, and then to have you reach out to me a while back and go, okay, because we'd already talked about him being a stress coach with us, and I said, you'll know when you're ready. Yeah. And he reaches out and goes, hey, I think I'm ready, and I said, well, we just happen to have this one coming up, <laughs> and I actually said, not only am I ready, but I need to do yes. this. Yes, he did. And, and, and I felt that need because I felt, I, I, I do feel, even in the days that we've been here this week, mm -hmm. I feel it's a therapeutic it uh, experience. Right. And you help others, you help yourself by helping others. Right. Yeah. And that's why I laugh when people like one of our stress coaches that was in here this week, and she's like, I, I think I'm too broken to be doing this. No, nah, you're good. <laughs> um, because again, all of us are broken. Right. All of us. And and the only way we can get better is to use our experiences to be able to relate to somebody else and help them. Right. And right. just sometimes sharing your experience yeah. is like eye-opening to somebody like, wow, I'm feeling those same things. I'm not crazy. You know? Right. Sure. I mean, it's it's amazing. And like I know when I did our stress coach class, you know, everybody came up, they they told their story. And I mean that that day was like, it was a hard day. It's a hard day. I mean, and it's, you just sit there and you think, man, all of us in this room where our stories may be different, there are, there's a lot of similarities. A lot of walking feeling. wounded in yeah. these industries. It's, and... a, it's amazing how much like police, fire, and military, that lifestyle just screws with you yeah. so bad. And one of the, one of the, uh, one other thing that was a big benefit down there was the, um, Nobody was afraid. People weren't afraid to call somebody out. Right. Yeah. You know oh, absolutely. I mean? and, 
And when you did that, um, you, they knew it was coming from a place of, of love and of look. This is, you know, yep. you've been giving anyone else the bullshit for all these years, but we all know what you're doing, or yep. what's the issue, or what you should be doing. <laughs> right? And and some took it and like it'd take them a day or two, but then they'd finally come out and you know. But you, you, that was a that was very impactful as well. Absolutely, was, and much more effective than any of the therapists right, doing right. it. Yeah, because first they don't know from real life experience about it, and and again. A cop calling a cop out, y'all, y'all are not going to continue <laughs> to try to blow smoke, right? You know, it just right. doesn't work. And you know, there's and there's, um, like I've been involved in a shooting, mm -hmm. and it, I don't even think about that ever. <laughs> it's all this <laughs> other stuff. I I don't even think I mentioned that at at, at Chatterproof, right? Because mm -hmm. that really is not usually the problem. Right. It's other yeah. stuff, yeah. Either from it like in Mark Valenzuela's case, um, or something else. Again, it's part of the job, the thing you're trained to do. Right, right. And again, some circumstances around it can change those things sometimes. Um, but for the most part, th that's not what's in the garbage can. Right. And again, <laughs> it takes one to know one and call one out. And for some reason, I have no idea why I'm able, I hadn't done y'all's jobs. And there's good reason for it. Um, <laughs> And it's not because I'm better than y'all. It's because y'all way above me. But I, I have that ability to read this stuff. And, you know. Well, again, we're the lucky ones for that. What an I honor mean. for me, though. It really is. I, I've said, boy, if if what you just said about this theory I came up with 30 <laughs> years ago about this crazy garbage can, um, if that would pay my rent, I would never charge anybody for anything I do. Sadly, I haven't found anybody yet <laughs> who, who would like to accept that as rent payment. But, um but, you know, as we, as we wrap this up again, it's, you know, it's like we said on um, the last podcast with Mike, this is just such an honor for us to have right. you guys come all the way in, wanting to be a part of this organization. You both have so much to offer. And I know it feels like it's kind of hard because we're geographically mm -hmm. so disconnected. But the reality of the matter is, is thank heavens for modern technology mm -hmm. and everything else. We are not very disconnected at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, again, thank you for in your role playing today with one of our other stress <laughs> coaches, because I can't wait to give that cop a firefight <laughs> because of the role play you did with him. That it's gonna was be, good. It's going to be great. <laughs> and, uh, but thanks a lot for for telling your story. Yes. I mean, you, you, you've got a, a story that can help. So many. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. From yeah. so many directions. I, 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 that's been my experience so far, and I hope it continues yeah. to be. It that's, will. I, I, but I need to be here. I need this, you know, and... and, and well, we need you. Right. It's, uh, I just want to, you want to be at somebody's life when they're so hurting that they... They're not sure, and their confusion, and their right. anger, and that hurt, and that whatever. Sure. Just to, if you can intercede and help them along a little bit, man, it's yeah. that's what I'm hoping. And here's another deal: we'll be each other's alibis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hey, we may be a Bonnie and Clyde type, male and female on this one, honey, because <laughs> we both got that same situation. Yeah. So, um, but again, thank you for honoring us with this podcast yes. and. 
for coming and spending this week with us. And again, welcome to the family. Because you are now, hey, honey, you're stuck with me now. Sorry, I know how to find you. Yeah. Don't think you're going to go back to Massachusetts and go, well, I don't have to hear from her again. <laughs> That's right. Watch this. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And I'm and I'm very happy that you let me come down. And, and uh, here we are. I got... Uh, Got a certificate I can finally hang up on my wall. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> something do that you're proud of. Yeah. <laughs> and we're gonna do good things together, all of us working together, and it's yes. one big family. And uh again, for those of you listening, our toll-free 24-hour number is 855-889-2348. Hit extension one. We will not have your phone number. Um, the stress coach that gets the call will only have the 855 number. So if you get disconnected, you have to call us back. Uh, my cell number is 334-324-3570. If there's something that John said in this podcast that you'd like to connect with him, reach out to me. I will make sure you get connected with him. And families, this this goes for y'all too. You're This is not... Officers and firefighters and first responders, military, they don't operate in a vacuum. Our services are as uh, much for the families as the ones doing these jobs. And I just want to thank you again for all the sacrifices all of you make, families included. We can't say that to you enough. Exactly. And you want to give your number over there, Tom the Bomb? Sure. My phone number is 480-861-6574. You can reach out anytime. Um, If you're struggling, please reach out to us so that we can be there to help you and support you and guide you to getting better. Yes. Make up a name. We don't care. You're right. Be Elmer Fudd for all I care. You know, I've had, I actually had somebody call one time giving my ex-husband's name. <laughs> I was actually kind of shocked it took that many years for somebody. <laughs> exactly. I was like, yeah, sure you are. That's probably not in your best interest. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> so y'all stay safe out there. God bless you, your families, and this great nation that we live in. And um, stay tuned for the next episode. No idea who it will be. Yeah, I'm it's not always sure. a surprise. It's a mystery. Absolutely. <laughs> stay safe.